You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Stephen Nemish has a Ph.D. in theology from Fuller Theological Seminary, where he studied under professors Oliver Crisp and Veli Matty Karkanen. His interests lie in Christian systematic theology, phenomenological philosophy, and the intersection of the two. He has written a number of articles and books. Among them are Orthodoxy and Heresy, uh, as part, published as part of the Cambridge Elements in the Problems of God series. And um, in that book, uh, Dr. Nemish considers orthodoxy and heresy to be essential categories by which the Catholic theological traditions evaluates the propriety or impropriety of various beliefs and practices relative to its non-negotiable commitments. In the book, he sketches moments in the development of Christian orthodoxy and heresy in time as much in the Old and New Testaments as in the history of the church. In the book, he also touches upon the relation between Scripture and ecclesial tradition, ultimately making a case for a Christian theology without anathemas that is concerned only for truth. He also, his his latest book out is uh, published by um, Cascade, or Whippenstock, with the Cascade imprint, and the title of that book is Theological Authority in the Church. And in this book, he argues via an interpretation of the New Testament in favor of a low concept of ecclesial authority in theology, maintaining that no one in the church has any further authority than that of derivatively, fallibly, and in principle reversibly relating and bearing witness to the teachings of Jesus and the works of God in him. So welcome, Stephen Nemish, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I thought we would just start out by giving us a little bit of background on your scholarship and what you're doing and um, just kind of what you're up to right now. Sure. Uh, I have a a bachelor's degree in philosophy from Arizona State University. I also did a minor in religious studies. After I graduated from Arizona State, I did an MDiv at Fuller Seminary at the satellite campus here in Phoenix. I graduated that in 2016. I applied for various PhD programs after my um, MDiv, but I didn't get in right away. So I had a year free. And so for that year, I just taught some courses and you know prepared to uh, apply once more. I applied in 2017 to the, or late 2016, I guess, or 2017 to the PhD program at Fuller Seminary to study with Professor Oliver Crisp and I was admitted. So then in 2017, I moved from my home in Phoenix to Pasadena, California, where I began my PhD studies. Um, In 2019, uh, towards the end of the year, 2019, I took my comprehensive exams and I passed them. So I began the dissertation stage. I moved back to um, Arizona. I wrote my dissertation. I got married. Uh, I defended my dissertation. I got a full-time job. I had a kid and here I am now. Um, interestingly enough, I don't work in academic theology, not officially. I teach Latin and Greek, uh, and this year also humane letters at a classical education charter school here in Phoenix. 
So I teach uh, ancient languages and humane letters. Um, but my first year working at the school, you know, I was a bit disappointed because I wanted to get a job uh, teaching theology or philosophy, which is what my degree is in, uh, but I didn't get one. And I remember one day I was, you know, I had a particularly anxious day. I taught sixth period Latin to seventh graders, which if you ever go into teaching, I think is the absolute worst class that you can teach <laughs> because already seventh <laughs> graders are energetic and squirrely and they don't, you know, they don't necessarily sit quietly for you to teach them. But to right. teach Latin to seventh graders during the last period of the day is absolutely the worst. They, they're just, they've had enough and they're ready to go home. So, you know, every day I would come home exhausted. And one day I, I was just sort of feeling it. And I said to myself, you know what? I am not a theologian unless I publish a book. I need a book with my name on the cover of it. So I sat down and started writing, basically converting my dissertation into something to publish as a book. Um, one day I got an email. I had published an article in the Journal of Analytic Theology titled Theology Without Anathemas. And somebody wrote me an email, the editor of the Cambridge Elements and the Problems of God series. Uh, and he said, would you like to write an element on the topic of orthodoxy and heresy? I just read this paper of yours. I think it's very good. You know, why don't you write the element? And so I said, sure. You know, the opportunity just sort of fell into my lap. So then I started mm -hmm. working on two books. I had my dissertation and then I had the orthodoxy and heresy book. The orthodoxy and heresy book is very short. It's only 30,000 words. So that one I was able to write very quickly. Um, and then in, during this time also, I had a YouTube channel and I was uh, producing YouTube content. I was basically involved in this discussion between uh, Protestants and Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, you know, the sort of the classic debates on these issues. Um, and around that time, I said, you know what, I want to write a book about this issue also. And I specifically wanted to write a book that focuses on the passage in Matthew chapter 16, uh, you know, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church, etc. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so I, so I wanted to write up, I wanted to write a book that focused on that passage, but also brought up related issues. And so that's what my theological authority in the church book is about. There, principally what I'm arguing is for what I call a low conception of the church's authority in theology. Um, and the really the center point, the centerpiece of my argument, the main, the, the one passage that I spend the most amount of time on is that passage in Matthew 16. So this is basically my, my history. You know, I started doing um, academic theological work while I was doing my master's degree. That's when I published my first papers. Um, I continued to publish and to write up until the present day. So I've been, you know, I've been at this basically since 2016 or 2015 or so. Um, I've got these books coming out and, you know, I stay busy. I have a, a sort of an obsessive, you know, drive to write and to get my thoughts down on paper. So I'm always thinking and there's always something more to write. Uh, so I, I keep busy and I'm always writing this or that. Interestingly enough, you know, I know that you have your book on uh, universal salvation. Uh, the first really the first topics that I was writing about and the first papers that I published were precisely on this topic of universal salvation. Um, in 2015, I don't know if you were there, maybe you were. Uh, in 2015, I went to the Rethinking Hell conference, which was held in Pasadena, California at the Fuller Seminary no, I campus. Wasn't, I wasn't at that one, but Robin Perry was at that one. I know. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. So I, I went to that one and I presented a paper there. Uh, actually, I presented a paper in which I argue against Oliver Crisp, who, you know, a year and a half later would become, or two years later would become a <laughs> supervisor. Uh, and then, and then Jerry Walls, who I've also met at various uh, times in my life. And he's a friend of mine. He wrote an endorsement for the Theological Authority book too. 
So in that paper, I argued, um, basically, I said that Oliver Crisp and Jerry Walls give what I think are two paradigmatic objections to universalism. Oliver Crisp gives an argument from the point of view of God's justice. Jerry Walls gives an argument from the point of view of human freedom. And what I try to do in that paper is to show that there are resources in the classical sort of patristic universalist tradition to respond to both objections. Um, so that was the first paper that I ever published, uh, actually, a first independent paper. Well, you sent me, um, you sent also, me, you sent me a, um, you sent me that paper, and I guess I first heard you. You were being interviewed by Chris Tilling on the On Script podcast, and you were yeah. talking about, you know, this relationship between um, scripture and tradition and heresy and orthodoxy, and. Mm-hmm. That has never been, that was never much, of, too much of an issue for me until uh, about 10 years ago, I became convinced that a Christian universalist theology actually worked the best for me. And I, I realized I could draw on patristic sources and some of the, I, I've, I began being persuaded by some of some better arguments that I was running into. But yeah. what that fairly quickly did was it involved me in a conversation about heresy that I had never really been uh, a part of before. And I, I found myself having to defend my position as being non-heretical. But then that also raised questions about, well, what is orthodoxy? And what is heresy and what is the relationship between tradition and scripture? And one of the funny things that happened or the ironic things was when I was, I grew up around, I didn't go to church, but I grew up around evangelical fundamentalism. And so mm-hmm. what, what I experienced of that was probably a caricature, you know, since it was like a glancing blow with it. So, but one of the things that I took away from that is that, these these people would say things like, "We don't follow any of the traditions of men. We just go by the we just go by the Bible." But the but right. later, so then fast forward, and I come to this, I start coming to this Christian universalist position, and I would I would be talking with people in more evangelical backgrounds, and they would say, "Well, that's sometimes they would say, well, isn't that heretical?" and I, I was. I don't. I don't think so. And they said, "Well, but didn't the church decide it was heretical?" And I said, "Well, that's a." Now you're getting into a conversation about the Fifth Ecumenical Council and the condemnation of origin and, and what goes on with that. But, but I'm curious why why would you be concerned as Protestant about what was going on at the Fifth Ecumenical Council and what what bearing would those what all of those decisions have to do with you today, you know, why would you bring, why would you bring an, an objection about the tradition of the church in the middle ages and what it might or might not have said about this issue? Because I thought you were just, you know, scripture alone. So anyway, I just learned that this issue of Christian universalism had a particular ability to really get the orthodoxy and heresy scripture and tradition discussion really really going. Yes, absolutely. Um, You know, it's interesting what you say. You asked the question, why would a Protestant care about, you know, some church council, you know, 1500 years ago or whatever it was? What does it matter uh, if you think that scripture alone is the authority for theology? Well, I I tend to find that there are um, 
two competing tendencies among Protestants. And this goes back even to the days of the Protestant Reformation itself. There are Protestants who want to uh, maintain their identity as Catholics. Um, and what I mean by this, I don't mean Catholic in the sense of Roman Catholic. I mean Catholic in the, like with a lowercase c. Catholic in the sense of belonging to that mainstream tradition of Christianity uh, that starts, you know, in the second century with Justin and Irenaeus and these guys, and then continues through the ecumenical councils with Athanasius or Cyril, the, you know, the Cappadocians, Augustine, etc. So there's a certain mainstream of Christian theology uh, that commended itself as being the Catholic Church, the universal church. Um, and so there are Protestants who want to maintain their Protestant identity, but also with a sense of Catholicity. They want to say, listen, I'm a Protestant, but I am also continuous with that mainstream and its you know, traditional heroes that existed for 1,500 years prior to the Reformation. And there are other Protestants who are less Catholic, uh, less concerned with Catholicity in this sense. Uh, and they say, look, it doesn't matter to me whether figures in the past agree with what I say. Uh, strictly speaking, in theology, the authority has always been scripture. Even those guys in the past didn't take themselves to be making up things, you know, from themselves. They, uh, they didn't think that they had the authority to just make things up. They were offering what they thought was the best interpretation of scripture. And so I'm playing the same game that they are. It's just I happen to disagree with them about the particular conclusions that I come to. Um, so there are different ways of thinking about this. There are Protestants who are more Catholic with a lowercase c, and they give a greater weight to the tradition of the church. And then there are Protestants who are less concerned to be Catholic with a lowercase c, uh, and they don't care so much about the tradition of the church. They think of the church fathers and all these figures from the past as something like conversation partners. I can consider Augustine's arguments. I can consider Gregory of Nyssa's arguments. I can read these guys and see what they have to say. But ultimately, I am free to come up with my own conclusion about what the text means. And really, only the text is superior over me. Everybody else is on equal footing. Um, so these are, these are two different tendencies that exist in Protestantism. Um, different Protestants tend to fall in one or the other camp. As I mean, to the extent that, I mean, in the extreme cases, you know, a lot of people who are sort of like Catholic Protestants uh, tend to become either Anglicans. Um, I think ultimately a lot of those people tend to fall back into Roman Catholicism or to Eastern Orthodoxy. They just give up on Protestantism altogether. Um, you know, a lot of times I think that this Catholicizing of Protestantism is kind of like rewinding a film and expecting something different to play out. Uh, because <laughs> there's a reason why the church in the fifth century became the Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Ages, right? There's like a, there's a logical progression of ideas that takes you from one point to the other. Um, and once you start saying that like church councils can have binding authority on theology, uh, that you can't just read scripture and determine what it means for yourself, you have to read it through the lens of the tradition of the church. Well, pretty soon you start having to ask questions like which tradition is authoritative? And before long, you come to the answer that, well, there's gotta be one guy on top who is calling all the shots and we all just listen to him. And that of course is the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. So there's a very short track from this sort of Catholic Protestantism back into Roman Catholicism. It's, it's very easy to go from one to the other. Once I realized this, I said, no, if I'm going to be a Protestant, I have to give up on this issue of Catholicity altogether. I have to say that Augustine, Gregory of Nazianzus, you know, Cyril of Jerusalem, all these guys, they are conversation partners. I can read what they have to say. I can consider their arguments, but ultimately all that matters is what does the text mean to tell me? Uh, and, I am just as free as they are to come up with my own conclusions about that. 
So I just I determined that I have to take this this less this less Catholic sort of more free Protestant uh, direction. Um, I think liberal Protestantism of like the 18th, 19th, and early 20th century, uh, Harnack, Schleiermacher, these guys, these guys represent this sort of non-Catholic or sort of post-Catholic Protestantism. You you know you can you open up the horizons of the conversation. You start to consider different points of view. Um, and so it's very easy to go from a non-Catholic Protestant position into liberal Protestantism. And that's what I would call myself. I consider myself a sort of a liberal Protestant. Um, and at the same time, it's very easy to go from a Catholic Protestant position into Roman Catholicism. So Protestantism is interesting. It's this sort of like instable middle position. Um, it's, it's not, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think you would call yourself a liberal Protestant. And I also don't think you would call yourself a Catholic Protestant. So it would be interesting to, to hear you say how you find a balance between the two. Um, but I think it's very easy for for Catholics, depending on the amount to which they care about Catholicity, excuse me, pro- for Protestants. Uh, it's very easy for Protestants, depending on how much or how little they care for for Catholicity, to either go back into Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy or else to fall in the direction of liberal Protestantism in one way or another. Yeah, the, um, the church I started going to in college is uh, Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but... What we did was we we rejected creeds as test of fellowship in in our history, mm-hmm. but then um, in the 1960s wanted to be a part of the uh, ecumenical movement, and so there was some divisions in this uh, in this early movement, but there was a stream of it became the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, and it wanted to it wanted to affiliate with the um, National Council of Churches and World Council of Churches. But, but the church also did not want to use creeds as tests of fellowship. But the National World Council of Churches used the Apostles and Nicene creeds as basically markers to identify what the core faith is that's being talked about. So what we did was right. we, 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 jo- we, we joined the National Council of Churches and World Council of Churches and what we did is we sort of said as a as a denomination as a church this is the this is the faith that we are wanting to affirm on the other hand we we do believe that people have the the right and responsibility to interpret the bible and to come to their own best theological conclusions so we don't use we don't use tests we don't use creeds as a test of fellowship so it was a kind of a it's a kind of a an awkward middle ground position a yeah. little bit. When, I've, I've retired from ministry now, but when people would ask me about it, I would say, well, you will notice that the hymns that we sing at the church, every Christmas, Jesus is going to be born of a virgin. Uh, every Easter, he is going to be crucified and going to raise, be raised bodily from the dead. You know, we're going to, we're going to celebrate the, you know, the core beliefs and worship, and we're going to talk about, we're going to, those are all going to be celebrated. Now, how you interpret those things privately and, and how you see them and how you come to your own theological uh, opinions, that's a, that's a journey that you're free to go on, uh, you know, indefinitely. That's a, that's, you know, kind right. of a never ending, that's kind of a never ending journey. So as I was progressing in my own theology, I, I had kind of a C.S. Lewis position where I said that 
I thought that God would save everybody that was savable, but maybe some of the, maybe the doors in hell are locked from the inside and maybe potentially people can lock themselves away, you know, forever. Then about 10 years ago, I really started rethinking all of that. And I came to the conclusion actually made more sense to think that, that I become attached to the idea that salvation is by grace alone. And I believed also that God extended grace equally to all and my continued, I guess, reflections on grace kept pushing me more and more to the idea that finally grace saves all. Um, mm-hmm. And once I did that, I, you know, I was fortunate because there were no boundaries that were set on me by my church or denomination at that point. That was just the outgrowth of my own theological opinion. As the minister of the church, uh, I was not setting some theological opinion that everybody had to agree with. My job was just right. to encourage people to follow Jesus to the best of their understanding and to, you know, like we're all doing, interpret the Bible, apply it to our lives to, you know, the best of our ability and to sort of do that in community where we're we're interacting with each other, sharing ideas and talking with each other. Um, so I wasn't I wasn't doing anything that was uh, that was wrong in my own tradition. But for a lot of people that are in that are ordained in some some church tradition, if you step across that line where you think, well, no, actually there is going to be a final, there's going to be a universal reconciliation at the end. I think I'm, I think I'm on board with uh, Gregory of Nyssa. If you do that Mm -hmm. in the modern context, there's a lot of churches and church related institutions, which will have a boundary line there that you have somehow now, you know, now crossed. So does that mean that your position is heretical or does that just mean that there's certain churches that have defined their theology to where that's just outside of the bounds of how they put their church together? Yeah, these are good questions. Um, What I say in my book, Orthodoxy and Heresy, is that orthodoxy and heresy are, we can say, relative terms. Okay, so an idea is not orthodox or heretical just in itself. Okay, so for example, I am a male. Uh, if you just consider me on my own and you don't think about anything else outside of me, you can come to the conclusion that I'm a male. Um, but I'm also a husband. And in order for me to be a husband, you can't just think about me. You have to think about the fact that there's another person to whom I was married. Uh, the legal contract is still you know, in place and so on. So my being male is something that's true of me on my own. My being a husband is something that's true of me with reference to somebody else, namely my wife, whom I married. Um, so orthodoxy and heresy are like this latter category of properties. No idea is orthodox or heretical just by itself. It's only orthodox or heretical in comparison to the other ideas that a certain community takes for granted as being non-negotiable. So for us, in our group, we say, for example, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Okay, And so for somebody to come along and to say that, no, he died and uh, you know, maybe his soul lives on forever, but his body was not raised from the dead. That would be a heretical idea. Now, the idea by itself is not heretical. It's just an idea. But in comparison to the official theology of our group, it is heretical, right? And so for us, as members of this group, we don't allow that idea. If you believe that, I'm sorry, you don't belong here. So orthodoxy and heresy are, are ways of labeling beliefs in relation to the official doctrines uh, and non-negotiable commitments of particular groups. Now, not all groups believe the same thing, right? The Roman Catholic Church doesn't believe the same things. 
that the you know Lutheran Church Missouri Synod believes or whatever. And mm -hmm. so each group is naturally going to have its own notions of what are orthodox and what are heretical ideas. There is certainly a lot of overlap. So for example, all the major Christian denominations affirm like the Nicene Creed. Okay, if you say that the son is not consubstantial with the father, that he's somehow lesser than him, uh, then you are not, you are heretical according to those groups. But the idea that the son is lesser than the father, that he's not consubstantial, that idea is not heretical by itself. It's only heretical, you know, from the point of view of particular theological communities. So then the question arises, okay, universal salvation, is that idea heretical? On it, by itself, no. By it, you know, just considered on its own, it is just an idea. It could be true, it could be false. Um, but it is heretical from the point of view of certain communities. So if you have, for example, like the Presbyterian Church, which follows the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, you know, that stipulates a doctrine of hell and of eternal damnation and so on. Within the context of the Presbyterian Church that follows the Westminster Confession of Faith, universalism is a, is a heretical idea. But in a different church context, you know, it would not be a heretical idea. Say that you belong to a church and the only official creeds were the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, right? Uh, mm -hmm. There is nothing about the doctrine of hell in these creeds. And so therefore, uh, because those are your only standards for theology, there would be nothing heretical about the idea of universal salvation within that community. Um, so again, the question is, you know, is universal salvation a heretical or orthodox idea? Well, it's heretical or orthodox relative to one group, but not to another, right? So it really depends on the group. Now, a lot of times when people say this, they assume that there is something like this overarching group called the church, Right, that has a lot of different subgroups within it that we call denominations, but they just assume that there is this thing called the church. Um, and somehow or other, the church as a whole is committed to particular doctrines. Now, this is there, there is no such thing. Okay, I challenge a person to where is this church? What are you talking about? Um, does the church include Arius and his followers and his sympathizers during the you know the Arian controversy in the fourth century? Does the church include Origen's followers uh, and the monks who were Originists and who speculated in various, you know, uh, uh, respects during the, the Fifth Ecumenical Council? Does the church include the Valentinians in Rome, whom Irenaeus was writing against in the second century? Does the, does the church include the Montanists, whom Tertullian joined towards the end of his life? Right? There are a lot of people all throughout the world who identify as Christians. And there is not really one thing in particular that all these people have in common, except for the fact that they believe in Jesus and they are committed to learning from him as their teacher. That's what they all have in common. But they don't interpret him in the same way. They don't understand him to be saying the same things. They don't have a lot of the same doctrines. So if you take the church to just be everybody who is a would-be student of Jesus, everybody who wants to learn from Jesus, well, there is no one doctrine that all those people have in common. There are too many doctrines, all right? So strictly speaking, from that point of view, nothing is orthodox and nothing is heretical, right? It's because not everybody who has ever been a student of Jesus came together and decided we all believe this, right? They always differed from each other. If you mean by the church, what I called earlier the Catholic mainstream, right? This sort of like Episcopal conciliar tradition that includes um, Irenaeus, Justin, Tertullian, and then it includes Augustine, Athanasius, the Cappadocian fathers, uh, Cyril of Jerusalem and so on. So if you mean this particular subset of Christians, this kind of mainstream, you know, of people that are associated with the ecumenical councils, certainly they had various doctrines that they all agreed on, but they are not the church. They are just parts. They're just a part of it, right? They're just a subgroup of all the people that have ever been considered Christians in history. And I don't, personally, I see there, there's no reason to privilege them over everybody else. 
There is no reason why Augustine's opinions should be more authoritative than, you know, Pelagius' opinions. Unless, of course, you're judging them both relative to some external authority. So the mere fact that it comes from Augustine doesn't prove anything. The mere fact that it comes from Pelagius doesn't prove anything. The mere fact that universal salvation is affirmed by Origen is not a point in its favor and it's not a point against it. Uh, my opinion is that the source of an idea is irrelevant to the question of its truth. You know, even a broken clock can be right twice a day, right? So even a person who is otherwise objectionable can be right about some things. Mm-hmm. So really the only thing that, what I argue in my books is that the only thing that matters in theology is whether or not the idea is true. Whether it's orthodox, whether it's heretical, all of these things are distractions because they're just, you know, the subjective judgments of particular communities. There's no reason to privilege one community over another. We have to ask, is this idea, let's say, of universal salvation true? And the only way to answer that question is to say, what are the arguments in its favor? What are the arguments against it? What evidence do we have? Let's consider the the case, right? But the questions of orthodoxy and heresy are, to my mind, distractions. They're irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It can be heretical for some community and still be right. It can be orthodox for some community and still be wrong. So those things are just, to my mind, distractions. Well, one of the things that I have that I have said when I'm trying to explain my position is that it's not a new position, and because it sounds new, because people yeah. a lot of people haven't heard of it, or just the term universal salvation doesn't sound necessarily Christian, sounds a little little generic, and uh, it could even sound like oh well, universal salvation that just that just must mean that all paths lead to the same place eventually or something like that. So then I might try to use the term Christian universalism, you know, to say, no, this is a Christian understanding of it. But sometimes then what I say is, well, really what this is, is it's a, is it's a, an argument based on certain scriptures and then certain ideas that you could develop from these scriptures. And this the, the, this kind of theology where God ultimately saves all, you can find examples of it in the early centuries of the church by some pretty leading figures. And I say, for instance, Gregory of Nyssa was somebody who was a leading figure in the church. He helped in the putting together the Nicene Creed. He believed in the universal reconciliation, but he and, and he wrote against heresies at the time. So whatever you think about all this, that in the earliest centuries of the church, the main issues seem to be on the divinity, full divinity of Christ, the full humanity of Christ, his his death, burial, and resurrection, those, you know, those sort of core types of things. And then but then questions about they also they believed in a judgment, a coming judgment. But questions about exactly how that coming judgment would work, there were a variety of opinions in the earliest early centuries of the church and it's not till you really get into the start getting into the middle ages that you really start seeing kind of a drive for conformity on some of these issues and you get into more and more contentious church councils um so i've just said that i think that christian universalism can fit within kind of the core um basic ideas of the Christian faith, as it, at least as it was being expressed in the early centuries of the church. Once you start, the, the further you get into the medieval period in the, what I think of as the Roman imperial church, the, the more um, specific and sort of nitpicky in a way, <laughs> the doctrinal 
uh, fights and become more politicized and controverted and and difficult to kind of uh, difficult to kind of tease out. So that's just how I've said it. How does the how does that sound to you? how does that kind of summary sound to you? I think you're right. Um, in the fourth and fifth centuries, you know, the central questions had to do with the equal deity of Christ in comparison with the Father, uh, and then also of the Holy Spirit. Um, and then the question turned by the time of the Council of Chalcedon to the equal humanity of Christ in comparison with us. So Christ, they, first they had to establish uh, that Christ was equally God, just as the Father is. And then they tried to establish how, even though he is equally God with the Father, he's also equally human with the rest of us. So he's not like half human. He's not a, a hybrid. He's just as human as we are. Um, so it's, I mean, if those are your principal concerns, you know, and, and as far as those uh, historical theological battles are concerned, the doctrine of universal salvation is perfectly consistent. Um, it is only later on in history, like you said, um, that the, especially with the Fifth Ecumenical Council, there's controversy about this, uh, but especially with the Fifth Ecumenical Council, a lot of people took the idea of universal salvation as having been excluded by that council. Um, and so it just sort of wanes in uh, popularity. And then, you know, you have a council against it. You can't really go against the council by this point in the history of hey, Christian let, theology. Let, like, there's let, me try, let, me try, let me try an exercise here. I'll give you my summary of what I think happened at the Fifth Ecumenical yeah. Council. And why don't you try to improve on it? Or <laughs> see, see if you think I'm Well, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert on that council, so you may know more than me. But if you want okay, to go so, ahead, I'm just so basically, you that, I'm not an the, Okay, so basically, you know, you have Justinian. He's trying to restore the Roman Empire. He's trying to restore the boundaries. He wants one code of law. He wants, uh, you know, one one religion. And there's, at that time, the Monophysite controversy about how many natures does Christ have. Well, the correct answer to that is two. Um, he's um, so the the Monophysites said he had just had one nature, and so no. We need to get that resolved. And so the fifth, that was the main reason the Fifth Ecumenical Council was called, was to resolve the Monophysite controversy. Well, then, prior to that council, the Emperor Justinian had, had issued some anathemas, and they did have to do with some ideas that had grown out of some of Origen's teachings, but that had been elaborated on by some of his followers, which were called the Originists. And if you read through those, there are a lot of speculative ideas um, that kind of built on what what Origen may or may not have said, which is kind of hard to which is kind of hard to ferret out. So there were some imperial anathemas, um, but those imperial anathemas weren't specifically just about the one question about the salvation of human beings. They got they got all tied up into the salvation of the demons and the devil and all kinds of other, right. what kinds of forms will our body have? Will be, will be, will we be spherical or there was all kinds of uh, questions that were going on there. So by the time you get to the, uh, oh, and, and the Pope did not want to be involved in that council. So, but by, by the, the, so it's the emperor calls the council. By the time they do the council, they are talking, the question of universalism is not even raised formally at the council. The only thing that happens is that the name of origin 
is inserted in the list in a list of heretics, but there's nothing in the records of the council about what for exactly. So it's not clear as to what it was, but what happened then historically, then some of the imperial anathemas that were not really formally a part that were prior to the council became kind of historically attached to the memory of that council. And it just kind of um, put kind of a lasting cloud of suspicion over any kind of idea that there might be sort of a universal salvation um, at the end. Right. And, and the further you go, that's my understanding of things also. Yeah. I I, I want to clarify. I don't mean to say that the fifth ecumenical council, like they all, all the bishops got together and decided to condemn origin. I mean, only to say that the, the way that it was received historically and the way that people came to understand it after the fact is as condemning origin and excluding this idea of, universal reconciliation but whether or not the bishops themselves had this in mind like you're like you're saying is is an entirely different matter so that conversation is for me as a mainline protestant in the christian church disciples of christ that's not doesn't feel bound by the creedal statements as much or especially the later uh, the later medieval church councils so this is uh, historically what when I think about this, what I when people will ask me, well, if this idea of universal restoration was in the early centuries of the church, why have we not heard about it? Then what I'll say is, well, by the time you get into the Middle Ages, it had fallen out of favor for various reasons, and when you get to the Protestant Reformation, uh, th- the idea that there was an eternal hell and an e- eternal heaven, and that people were going to be divided up. That issue was people weren't really reevaluating or even thinking about that. They were thinking about other questions. So now it's just once you get to like the 1800s, 1900s into our time that people are able now to look back over the entirety of the tradition and be able to make some judgments about what, how, how we understand it, how we receive the whole, whole thing. So. Um, so I just say it's not that for me, it's not something that I'm overly concerned with, but I do understand why historically kind of the memory of the early universalist tradition would have been, would have been lost, especially in the Western church. You know, it's interesting when people talk about orthodoxy and heresy in theology, they are basically, um, taking, uh, the whole course of history as if it's like there's no stopping it there's no inquiring into it you know all we do in theology is pass on the ideas that we've received and then try to develop them but we can't call into question what we've got right it's like you're being you're being you're 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 being granted an inheritance and you're not allowed to question the inheritance or to like remove any part of it you just have to keep it and pass it on um, people who talk about orthodoxy and heresy in theology think about theology like that receiving an inheritance and passing it on. And even when you pass it on, you don't, um, you know, you don't make changes to it. You don't like make fundamental adjustments. You just try to keep it and preserve it as much as possible in the shape that you received it. Um, You cannot have a notion of orthodoxy and heresy without that, because if you can change your inheritance, if the community can decide to believe different things, then you know, there's no more judgment for orthodoxy and heresy anymore. There's not, there's no, there's no set standard to determine the orthodoxy or heresy of our ideas. We're just trying to figure things out as we go and make adjustments as we see fit. 
So um, that's, you know, when you talk to people who bring this issue of orthodoxy and heresy up, they think like that. Uh, they think that theology is just a matter of receiving and passing on. And there's no changing, there's no adjusting, there's no fixing, there's no correcting, there's no inquiring. On the other hand, it seems to me like there's no reason why that should be our attitude, right? Because the people that we've received our theologies from are finite, fallible people who can make mistakes. I mean, the people who wrote the Nicene Creed, you know, there's this wonderful line in uh, a book by... Um, I forget his name. He was one of these uh, 19th century American liberal theologians. And he says, the people who wrote the Augsburg Confession didn't know that the earth goes around the sun, <laughs> right? These are people who are like, we've, knowledge has increased so much <laughs> since then, right? Even the, the historical appreciation of what happened at the Fifth Ecumenical Council is entirely different in the present day than it was during the time of the Protestant Reformation. And so there is no reason to just sort of freeze theology in the past and to not allow it to be changed or to be, you know, th there's no reason to adopt that kind of attitude. I received a certain theological inheritance from my parents and they received it from someone else and so on and so forth. There's no reason why I can't ask questions or why I can't ask, you know, is this actually right? Is this really what I should think? Um, naturally, that kind of destabilizes things. Uh, you know, if you, the point of firm traditions is to keep a community stable. Right. As long as we all have the same traditions and we keep them and we pass them on, then a community can exist continuously over time. The second you start to call these traditions into question, the second you start to maybe change some of them or make adjustments, then it's like, you know, the blinders are taken off. The horizon is opened up and now the community doesn't have a, a set future anymore. It can go in a lot of different directions. What people fear is that this might happen in the case of the church. Right. We received a certain theological inheritance, we have, to, we have to keep it because otherwise, if you don't keep it, if we try to make adjustments and changes to it, then maybe, you know, the, the reins will be taken off and then the, you know, everything will, you know, it's like, you know, one person will go this way, another person will go that way and there'll, there'll just be chaos. Maybe that will happen. That's true. But, you know, there is no other way to make progress and to correct your mistakes except to open yourself up to that risk, right? If, physical science or medical science, for example, was like this, if we just received wisdom from past generations and never made any adjustments, we would never make progress. We would not have cures to diseases. We wouldn't have vaccines. We wouldn't have all of the things that are so helpful for us in the present day. You have to adopt a different attitude. And the same thing is true in theology. In theology, I like the model of the disciples of Christ, uh, Christian church, right? There's no creed. We don't all have the same theology. We're all students in the classroom and we're trying to figure things out. We're all trying to learn. We're, we're adventurers on a, on a journey together. I like that model. And I think that that's how things should be in theology also. I should have the freedom to question an idea and to give arguments for or against it and to consider, you know, the case for alternative points of view. Because that's the only way that you can make progress. You can keep, you know, passing on inherited ideas, but if they're false, you're not doing yourself a favor and you're not doing anybody else a favor by just passing them on something that's not even true in the first place. Um, not only can inherited theological ideas be false, they can also be spiritually problematic and troublesome. I mean, I'm sure that you know people who respond to this notion of universal salvation and they find it liberating. They find like they can trust God. They feel like, you know, a burden has been taken off of their backs in their spiritual lives. Um, their relationship with God takes on a new shape and new form once they become convinced of the fact that God is so good that he will not allow me to be lost, period, no matter what. Um, so the inherited ideas that we've received 
might not only be false, they might also be harmful. And so there are at least two reasons why we should be open to investigate them, to ask questions about them, to reject them if we think that, um, you know, if we think that they're false or if we think that they're ultimately not worth it. The risk that you take, like I said before, is that the boundaries on the community become blurred and, you know, maybe things will be different in 100 years than they are now. Maybe our community will not survive as it is in this present state. But that's the risk that we take, uh, you know, in order to make progress. There is no other way. You either have stability and it's possibly a stability in falsehood or a stability in harm. Or you try to undo falsehood and undo the harm, in which case you no longer have the stability because you don't know where you're going to end up. And there is no middle position. I guess if there is a middle position at all, it's just saying, listen, we are all of us committed to trying to figure these things out. We are not going to put rules on what you know we can and can't say. Uh, we're all engaged in this mutual project of exploration, and we try to figure things out as well as we can. And we're just going to work together for as long as we can. Uh, this is really my model of a theology without anathemas, right? The only thing that matters to us in theology is the truth. And I'm not going to declare an anathema on people who disagree with me because I can't even be sure that I'm right, nor can I be sure that they're wrong. We're going to talk about things. We're going to have conversations. We're going to work it out. Um, maybe we can't really convince each other, but that's okay. I can think what is right for me. You can think what is right for you. We respect each other's freedom and we continue on our journeys together. So I, I think personally what is necessary is a different attitude about theology. You have to think no longer in terms of inheriting a legacy and passing it on, but as participating in an exploration, in a journey of trying to figure things out, you know, taking a more scientific approach to these things. Um, and I think that once you meet people who do have that mindset, then this idea of universal salvation will not strike them in the same way. If you have people who, for them, religion is just a matter of inheriting something and passing it down, they cannot take new ideas. They are resistant to new ideas. For them, new ideas are dangerous. Um, so what needs to be changed is this mindset, this approach to religion as purely a matter of inheriting something and passing it on, you know, complete, just the same as you received it. That has to go in order for honest theological inquiry to be made possible. One of the um, phrases or one of the mottos of the Protestant Reformation was Semper Reformanda. The idea of yeah. always reforming, and so that that they didn't necessarily think that they had now figured they had now done it that that and nothing and they had figured it all out, and no new thinking needed to be done there was so the the Protestant Reformation part of the idea was that it would always be reforming and that it would be always testing itself primarily against scripture because sola scriptura was another one of the was another one of those slogans and so i think that's if if you look at my book the the foundation of what i'm arguing is all scriptural but later on later on in the book i come along and i i do introduce some philosophical arguments some logical arguments as to why I think this is why I think it coheres, but fundamentally I'm making a scriptural argument and then trying mm -hmm. to argue that it best coheres with the nature of God that we see revealed in Christ. And so I could argue that all I'm doing is continuing the Reformation, continuing, continuing to take stock of things, to look, to look back, to reevaluate, and then to see how we might best present ourselves today. And the case that I make is 
There's no reason today why we should present Christianity as if in order to be a Christian, you have to believe that God has a hell that is going to be populated with some number of people for some reason forever. That right. that 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 is not that does not have to be an some kind of essential. Like if you're going to believe in Jesus, you also have to believe in this populated eternal hell of some kind. That you don't have you don't have to do that. You can believe you can accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and understand that He will finally be successful in restoring the whole creation. That that can that's a possible Christianity for you. And so that's what that's what I'm hoping for this. Sometimes people call this an age of deconstruction. Maybe it's just a continuance. Uh, maybe it's a just a a new installation of the Reformation where we are recovering some ways of thinking that we used to have and kind of reviving them and saying, no, this can be a modern option for us um, today too, as as we present options for possible, uh, ways that people can put the Christian faith together. And, and I've seen practically what this does is when people find out about a Christian universalist option, they were on their way out of Christianity, and then they find this, and it keeps them, and it's like, oh, I didn't know this was a possible lane for me. I could, I, I think I can do this. Or people who I'm talking to about Christianity, and when I explain my position, they are usually very curious. Like that's this is really interesting. I've never heard Christianity presented in this way before. And when I tell them, well, it's part of the early centuries of the church. I can make a biblical argument for it. They get really curious and interested and in, and in kind of hopeful about this as a spiritual possibility for them. So, how does all of that sound to you? I'm. It sounds par for the course. I my personal opinion is that very many people suffer from a kind of spiritual anxiety because on the one hand they feel that they have to be christians or else they're going to go to hell forever on the other hand they feel that being a christian means being encumbered with all these doctrines that are hard to make sense of uh, hard to defend you know maybe even paint god in a questionable light for example like the doctrine of hell it's not easy to believe that god would if not himself cause it at the very least allow people to totally ruin themselves without any hope of recovery. You know, we often talk about God in terms of a parent analogy. We say God is our father, right? I, I just had a son. He just recently turned a year old. Uh, so he's about a year and a month and a half old. Um, I would never allow him to do that to himself. Right. So do I love my son more than God loves me? Right. I mean, to some people's ears, this is like a heretical way of thinking because their whole notion is, look, this is what Christianity is. You can't mess with it. You can't tinker with it. You just believe what you're given and you pass it on. Um, but, you know, I think to myself, like, why? Why should it be this way? Why does God make things hard for us? <laughs> why, 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 for example, would he demand that we submit to all these doctrines that cause anxiety for us, that um are difficult to defend that just open up the faith to objections and arguments from, you know, non-believers and just seem ridiculous in the eyes of very many people. Um, I, I think that this is a, you know, this is a good point to make, right? It, it can be spiritually liberating and empowering for people to recognize that, you know, the, the closed horizons of the present day were not always there, right? It's like, it's like you're an animal that grows up on a farm and all you know is your pen, which is, you know, only so big. 
and then you're taken into an open field and there are no more boundaries anymore. And it's like, wow, this is amazing. Some people might be scared at it, but there's something inside of us that wants that freedom. There's something inside of us that yearns for the kind of freedom to think and to find our place and to, you know, find a way of thinking about things that make sense to us. Um, so I think this is good. This is exactly what my own theological project is about. It's about, you know, tearing down these unnecessary walls on theological reasoning and allowing people to be concerned for one thing only, what is true? What is the correct belief about ourselves, about God? What is the best way of making sense of things? Um, and, you know, from this point of view, from my point of view, demanding certain beliefs, saying this is orthodox, this is heretical, you must believe this, you cannot believe that. These are just unnecessary burdens, burdens and, you know, uh, hindrances to human beings' freedom. Um, there's one more point that I did want to make here. Okay. Uh, with respect to with respect to universal salvation. Oh, what was I going to say? The thought came up as I was talking, and now I've lost it. Maybe it'll, <laughs> okay, it'll well, come back to me. It probably will come back to you. Well, I was this. Or I want to go back to this article that you wrote, Christian Apocatastasis Two: Paradigmatic Objections. And I thought this was a really well done article, and it really showed that you had um, a lot of background in this issue. So let, maybe you can just rehearse this um, for what, what were the two paradigmatic objections and how did you think that, the, that a Christian universalist tradition could, could answer those objections? So I, I, I wrote that paper uh, during my master's degree. It was published in 2016. Um, so this was written almost you know, what, like seven years ago or so, or yeah, I don't yeah. remember all the arguments, but I remember broadly the case that I make. Um, I basically, I, I think that there are two basic arguments that people make to the doctrine of universal salvation. <clears throat> One of them uh, is an argument from God's justice. All right. God can't be, God can't save everybody because he needs to show his justice by punishing some sinners. Uh, the second argument is an argument from freedom. God can't guarantee that everybody will be saved because he's given human beings freedom. And that means that some of them can refuse God forever. Um, and so what I do in this paper is I try to show that within the Christian universalist tradition, it is possible to respond to these objections. In response to the first objection, the argument from justice, uh, the Christian universalist tradition would say that justice by its nature is restorative. Okay, God's justice involves not just punishing, but also restoring what is broken. So it is true that people who are sinners and who die unrepentant will be punished for some time. Uh, the Christian, you know, the traditional universalist uh, position affirms the existence of hell and of punishments. However, they would say that God's justice is of such a nature that he does not just punish. He also tries to fix. He tries to restore the person who is being punished. Now, we might not be able to do this all the time, right? Some people are beyond the possibility of our fixing them, but not that, that is not impossible for God. God can fix anybody if he wants, uh, because he's all powerful. And so the punishments that will be applied to sinners do satisfy God's justice. It's just for him to punish sinners. But at the same time, his justice also has this restorative element, right? And so that demands not only that sinners be punished, but also that they be restored and fixed and healed through their punishments. Um, so. The classical universalist tradition uh, says that God's punishment of sinners is intended for their good. It's a way in which he heals them, right? He gives them harsh medicines, so to speak, and harsh treatments for the sake of repairing their brokenness and, you know, turning them from sinners into righteous creations. 
It's a sort of a thera- as for the argument, th- yeah, kind of like a therapeutic, a therapeutic approach, almost like if you had a like a, a cancer patient, you wouldn't you you'd be trying to you'd be trying the treatment. The point of the treatment is to kill the cancer cells, not the patient. Right. So I would say that for the classical universalists, at least some of them, not all of them, but at least some of them would say that there is also a retributive element involved. Uh, sinners are punished because they deserve punishment, right? It's the appropriate thing to punish a sinner. Uh, but they would say that God's justice is not purely retributive. It also has this restorative or therapeutic element. So on the one hand, they're being punished because they deserve it. But on the other hand, they are, their punishment is also aimed at their restoration, which is not something maybe they deserve, but it's still a part of justice, right? So justice includes mm-hmm. more than just retribution. Now, with respect to the argument from freedom, uh, Christian universalists say that freedom is not like this pure openness and indifference to anything, right? Like I can do this or I can do that. I can uh, breathe or I can hold my breath. I can do good or I can do evil. Freedom is not really like this open horizons of just doing whatever you want. Freedom rather for the universalist is the power to do what's good for you, the power to do what your nature demands. So for example, um, if I have an asthma uh, episode, right? And it's hard for me to breathe. My freedom is taken away, not because I'm incapable of breathing, but because breathing is good for me and I need to breathe and something has impeded what, what is good for me, right? So it's not the mere fact that I can't breathe that is means my freedom has been taken away. It's rather the fact that I need to breathe, but I've been made unable to do so. That's what, that's what takes away my freedom. The fact that I'm not able to do what is good for me. Um, the universalist will say sin takes away our freedom. There is no such thing as a freedom to sin. The ability to sin is precisely a defect. The fact that I can turn away from what's good for me into something evil shows that I'm not free. There's something in me that is broken that is making me open and sympathetic to things that are bad for me, and that needs to be healed. I will never be free to do what is right for me to do and to have what is good for me until that is taken away. So the possibility of sinning is actually not a proof of our freedom, but a proof of our brokenness. And you cannot be free if you're broken. You need to be fixed in order to be free so that you can do what is right for you. And so the universalists will say that the ability to sin is in fact a proof of brokenness and not of freedom. And God does not take away our freedom by making us unable to sin. He's actually fixing us. Um, you know, like if I had a laptop, for example, that at any moment could shut down, <laughs> that laptop is not functioning properly. It's broken, right? Mm-hmm. It, it should be able to stay on as long as I need it to. So also, if we can sin, if we can choose to go against God and to go against what's good for us, that's not a proof of our freedom. That's a proof of our brokenness, our freedom. And it actually takes away from our freedom because whenever we try to do what's good, there's always a temptation to do what's wrong, right? There's always something pulling us away from it. So actually, our freedom is being taken away by the ability to sin rather than being granted us. So this is how the universalist tradition would respond to this argument, that freedom is the ability, is not the ability to sin, it's the ability to do what is good and right for you. And our ability to sin takes away our freedom rather than being a part of it. Uh, So when God makes us incapable of sinning, he is not taking away freedom from us. He's actually making us free to be able to be what we should be. Well, one of the arguments that really made me think was the idea that if scripture says that God, I can find scriptures that say that God is love and that God is a being of light in in whom there's no darkness at all, and then uh, I kind of combine that with the sovereignty of God and the idea that God has foreknowledge or that God knows the end from the beginning. If I put all of that together, 
that it, it seems to me that that God, being a being of light, in whom there is no darkness at all, would would not inject some kind of permanent darkness into the creation in foreknowledge. So I'm a being of goodness and light, pure being of goodness and light, but I make a creation that I know is going to turn out to contain some permanent darkness, something that's not finally resolvable. And the more I thought through that kind of on a philosophical level, that if, and it was David Bentley Hart's writings that helped me do that, he made the case that the that the the consummation of creation is finally also the revelation of the moral character of God. Because if there's any tragic remainder in creation, then that just doesn't tell us something that there was tragic that happened that rebounds back to the, the character of the creator. And so we find out it tells us something about the essence of God. And what it tells us is that that God is in fact not a being of light in whom there's no darkness at all. It tells us that there is some darkness in God. And then once I reflected on that, I realized that, well, in a way, God is a name that I reserve for um, a supremely perfect being whose who's all of his ad- attributes are uh, beyond my ability to imagine something greater. So if I was, if I'm presented with a God who then makes a creation with unresolved tragedy in it, um, at that point, it might be difficult for me to call that being God, because that's sort of a name I had reserved for a being that is pure goodness and pure light and pure mercy and all those, and all those good characteristics or, or attributes. At that point, then, a God who's presiding over some type of eternal hell, pop, some type of populated eternal hell, or a God who, who either annihilates people who don't measure up or lets them annihilate themselves, um, that then being would, would start to appear to be more like a demiurge that I would need to escape somehow or not want to worship or be in the, in the presence of. And so how does, does, how does that journey show up on your radar screen? You know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to an argument like this, but I don't know that it's conclusive because people who do believe, for example, in an eternal hell will say that there is not an unresolved tragedy in the story because the punishment of sinners in hell is an expression of God's justice. Um, you know, justice is also a good thing in addition to mercy. And so what they will say is that God's story has these two sides. There's mercy for the saved, and then there is justice for the damned. And both of these things are good. It's not that mercy only is good and justice is bad. Justice is also a good thing. And so there is not really a res- an unresolved tragedy. Um, uh, there is just two outcomes that are both appropriate because they are both reflective of God's character. Now, my inclination to say, my inclination to respond to this is to say that um I do not consider that pure retribution is actually any good at all. I don't think that there is any good in simply punishing for the sake of punishing. Um, so I'm not inclined to say that a a story in which some people end up punished in some irreversible way simply because they deserve it. I don't think that there's that's good. 
you know, but the difficulty here is that I don't find it good. That's not a proof that God doesn't find it good, right? So here we have really just a sort of a battle of intuitions. I have a certain sense of what is good and you have a certain sense of what is good. Um, and, you know, your story about how things end up doesn't seem good to me. You don't have any problem with it. Well, we have to somehow find a way of escaping this subjective circle that we're in and looking to see what God is actually like, right? Let's, let's set aside the question of what we think is good and what is bad um, and see, do we have any evidence from God uh, to suggest one way or the other? So I, while I'm sympathetic to this kind of argument, I, I don't think that it's convincing. For, and even though I know David Bentley Hart, for example, is very confident in this argument and you know, rightly so. It's, it's a strong argument. I'm, like I said, I'm sympathetic with it, but I don't know that it's ultimately probative or convincing for the reason that it's too easy to say, no, justice is also good, right? So there is a certain subjectivity in our evaluations of these things that I think can be easily overlooked. Well, like just if you, just to continue the conversation a little bit, to take the analogy, you would not, for instance, enroll your son in something that you knew would be tragic for him, that would that would lose lose him to you forever, um, right? And so, it's just to me not hard, not that hard to imagine that it's it's not good to do bad things to people, and it's if if I enroll if if I create somebody, and then I know because I'm their creator that they are going to fall into some tragedy. Um, and then I go ahead and make the creation and then they fall into that tragedy. I'm, I'm the first cause. I'm the first cause of that. Um, and so just the idea that, that God can be the first cause of, of a tragic situation that somebody is enrolled in that they didn't choose, that God initiated the whole thing. Um, to me, that just has kind of a, like on a human level, we could tell that if a human parent did something along those lines, that that would, we could easily tell that that was, you know, that that was wrong. And it, that the idea that a human parent would inflict a mortal wound on their own child uh, to, you know, in, in some kind of punishment, that if your child disobeys you, that you inflict a mortal wound upon it, that seems, you know, we we would clearly define that as not loving. So I guess the difficulty for me is uh, once we start saying, if we start saying that God, well, the goodness of God could be anything. Uh, you could posit a creation in which this perfectly wonderful and good God makes a creation in which he torments every single person that's in it forever. And you could just say, well, that's just God's justice. Everybody failed. And that's God's justice and God's justice is good. And who are we to question, you know, the goodness of God? Then you end up having no ability to make any moral judgments about what God is allowed to do or may do. And, and then I, then you're just in, you just don't have any way to make comparisons. And Jesus teaches us to call God father and in many different ways makes a comparison of God as father so I think that that using that as a controlling metaphor in order to make judgments about what is good in relation to what a good father does and to be able to identify that in front of God and to say this this action that you've taken where you enrolled this person in a tragic situation that they were not able to escape 
doesn't appear to be the action of good of a good father. And I think that's a reasonable I think that's a reasonable complaint. It's hard for me to imagine how that would not appear to me that that would ever be appear to me to be okay, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- this kind of argument is tricky because there are a lot of ways that opponents of universal salvation can respond. For example, they might say that in the first place, God is not a father to everybody. Um, you know, they'll point to the language of adoption in mm-hmm. the New Testament, and they'll say that um, Christ, strictly speaking, is the son of God in the original sense. We are adopted children. Uh, but from the fact that we're adopted, it follows that we were not originally his children. He made us his children by adopting us. Um, and they will say that the New Testament does not give evidence of a sort of universal doctrine of adoption. Uh, rather, adoption takes place uh, through faith and through baptism. Uh, they might point to a place like uh, Galatians chapter 3 and the discussion of adoption there. And so it's it's not true that God relates to everybody as father. He is father to those whom he has adopted, uh, who are going to be in heaven. But to other people, he is simply their creator and therefore retains the right to punish them if they should sin against them. So to them, he, re- he relates strictly as Lord and not as also as father. Um, with respect to Christ's teachings that compare God to a father, they would probably say something along these lines. Uh, Christ teaches his disciples who have faith to speak about God as their father, but he does not, for example, tell um, the Pharisees or sinners or you know people who are not following him to think of God as their father because he is not a father to them. He's only a father to his disciples who have faith. Um, so they might also say things like this. There are any number of things that happen in the world that I would not allow my own son to undergo. Uh, for example, there are people who are, you know, eaten by animals. There are people who get cancer and die. There are people who try to make something of their lives and every single one of their plans fails. Um, there are children who are abandoned or, you know, born basically addicted to drugs because their parents consume drugs while pregnant. Or, there are all kinds of bad things that happen in the world, the Holocaust. Um, I would never allow any of those things to happen if it were up to me. And yet God does allow them to happen. So these persons would say, it seems like we cannot be so confident about what God would and would allow, would or would not allow to take place in the world. We have to wait and see what actually happens. We cannot know God's thoughts ahead of time. We have to learn the way that he thinks by seeing what actually happens in the world. Um, And these persons will say that we have in the New Testament some considerable evidence that God will allow some persons to be lost forever. And so it must be compatible with his character to do this. Um, Maybe it's surprising to us. It's not what we would have expected, but that's just the way things are. So the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to these arguments, but I think that there are a lot of ways of responding to them. And it's very easy for the discussion to, to become quite convoluted very fast. Well, I th- I think you know, like if you start thinking about that God, that it's that I'm not just, you know, the argument that I'm trying to make is is also you know got some scriptural weight to it of God finally being all and also that, you know, that First Corinthians fifteen twenty eight talks about the time uh, the Son Himself will also be subjected the one who put all things in subjection under Him so that God may be all in all. Romans eleven thirty two for God has imprisoned all in disobedience that He may be merciful to all. Ephesians one nine to ten, 
He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. Um, let's see, I like the passage from Colossians. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulership power, all things have been created through him and for him. For he himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then it ends up that for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, uh, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And there are other passages I could cite. So I'm, what I'm trying to do is make an, an argument that this is not just what I think God should do, um, but I'm trying to make a scriptural argument if we're, if we're trying to um, always be reforming trying to make a scriptural argument yeah. that I think I can find that I can find uh, evidence um, for all of this. And, and, but if, if we are, you know, that in, in the, the world that you're talking about, there is no Pope that can come along and settle this. There is no prior church council that can decide this for us. The right. only way that we can do this is we can continue to have these conversations and uh, yeah, it might become convoluted, but we keep testing our best, our best ideas, our best intuitions um, about how how to put things together, and keep putting what we think, at least, are the best ideas, um, best ideas forward. And I, I guess what I feel good about now in this time is that uh, it's increasingly easy for me to reach out to. Uh, scholars who I can talk about my Christian universalism and they may not be exactly on board with it or see that maybe not think the case is as strong as I think it is. But I can find a lot of scholars who will say, well, yeah, I mean, it's a part of the early, early history of the church. There's a lot of early church. There's a lot of, you know, early church folks that, that thought this way. There's some good scripture behind it. There's there's some energy behind it in the modern theological discourse. It's definitely part of the Christian, definitely part of the Christian discussion. It's not hard for me to find you know, uh, educated people who know this. What, and I guess that's part of what I'm trying to get out there. Like sometimes I can talk to somebody and they'll be surprised about my Christian universalism, and, and they'll be a little skeptical that this belongs to the history of the church, or that there can be a scriptural argument that that can be made plausible scriptural argument that can be made for it. So just, just to me, that is, that those are steps forward that just letting yeah. people know that, well, this is something, it may not be immediately convincing to everybody, but it is something that has, a, that has a history and a tradition. It has some, it has some strong arguments to make. And um, maybe we should make this more a part of our modern uh, theological debate in discussion as we continue to go forward. No, I, I think that universal salvation is a legitimate option for Christians from the point of view of the Bible, from the point of view of, of um, you know, the history of theology, unless you belong to a church like the Roman Catholic Church, for example, which has just sort of declared from the top down, this is a heresy. We, we You cannot believe this and be a part of our community. Strictly speaking, from the point of view of the Bible or from the point of view of church history, I think it's a legitimate option. 
I do not think that you can establish it on biblical grounds. I think that the biblical debate is always going to be convoluted. There's always going to be a response to every argument that you make. Um, and what happens is that you have two, basically, I mean, even the, the discussion that we've had here, you know, like you mentioned one text and then uh, you're forced to bring up another and then, and then you're forced to bring up another. So basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to get a sense of the whole landscape and we're trying to dis de describe it as best as we can. And there are different ways of doing that, right? No one text is going to solve this debate for us, um, right. even if one text might yeah. be more convincing to some persons than others. Um, so, for example, when I first became sympathetic to universal salvation, I was uh, at a Bible study. Uh, this was back when I don't even know if I was an undergrad or if I was a, a senior in high school. So this was some years ago. Um, I was thinking about 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I think verse 13, which says that one died for all and therefore all have died. And so there I saw the connection right away. Christ's death is the death of everybody. Christ's life is the life for everybody. So it just, it just clicked immediately in my mind. Christ died for everybody. He's going to save everybody. Um, so that struck me. Um, but, you know, as I continued to study theology over time, I found that there are a lot of different ways of reading these passages. There are a lot of different ways of making sense of, the idea of eternal damnation. Some people think, for example, that damnation is explained in terms of God's predestination. He just determines that he's not going to save certain people or positively that he will damn some people. Uh, some people explain damnation in terms of freedom. Uh, some people think that, you know, God allows people to respond freely to the, the good news of the gospel and some people reject it and he doesn't intervene. He doesn't, you know, step in against human freedom. Um, Thomas Torrance and Karl Barth, for example, have their own unique ways of dealing with this question of damnation, especially Torrance. Um, so I find that these discussions, they, they can go on forever, right? It's like every, every 50 to 100 years in the history of theology, like the, the problem of universalism comes up again, um, and it's debated to death, and then it goes away for a while, and then it comes up again with like a next, you know, after a generation or two passes, and then it debate, it's debated to death, and then it goes away. And this has just sort of always happened. It's been happening basically since about the time of the Reformation. Um, I personally think this is my you know sort of final word of encouragement to the, your listeners and to you and to people who are hearing this podcast. Universalism is a legitimate option for a Christian, right? If you belong to a specific church or denomination that does not allow it, then from the point of view of that denomination, obviously, you know, we don't allow that here. But from the point of view of a Christian, just somebody who wants to be a student of Christ and to learn from him, uh, this is a legitimate option. There are reasons to believe this. There are arguments in favor of it. Um, you know, you're not going to hell if you believe this. This is, this is something that Christians have believed throughout history. And it's there's there's evidence in its favor. You should consider that evidence and determine if this is what you think is right and go with it and believe it if you think that it's true. Um, so, you know, that that's the best that I can say. I... Um, I don't know whether I would call myself a universalist. I was at one point in my life. Um, I don't know whether I would call myself a universalist now. I know the arguments in favor of it. Um, I know the arguments against it. I do not think that the arguments against it are necessarily good. Um, like I don't, I don't necessarily think that they're like proofs. I just think that they're hard to respond to. I think that the debate can come to a stalemate. And so because the debate can come to a stalemate, because it's not simply a matter of one side, like, you know, swallowing up the other, I'm therefore hesitant to say whether I believe this or not. I, I prefer to keep things open. Um, but I certainly think that universal salvation is a legitimate thing for people to hope for, to pray for, to 
desire, you know, to go out and try to make it happen, go and preach the gospel to people. No one's going to stop you, right? If you try to save everybody. Um, so I think universal salvation is at, at the very least what we can say is that it's a legitimate thing to hope for and to desire and to pray for. Whether it is actually true, I think is not as easy to say. The arguments are inconclusive, even if they are strong. Um, but I think it's certainly a legitimate thing. There is no reason why people hearing you talk about it should be shocked and think like, oh, well, nobody has ever said this in the history of theology before. That's not true. Scott, like you said, scholars know that this is a thing that has been debated again and again with every past yeah, maybe generation. That's a, so maybe that's a good way. To, that's, that's a good way of summarizing it, that scholars know that this is a thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's one of the things that I'm trying to sort of get out to like regular people is that is that, you know, if you talk to an educated person, somebody that's got, you know, that knows the history of Christianity, that knows the history of theological discussion, early church, that just, you know, is a trained theologian, especially a trained philo philosopher and theologian, they're going to be aware of all of this. This is right. this is not going to be anything that's going to be new or shocking to them. In a certain way, they might even be a little bored with it because like you, they have kind of heard all the arguments and counter arguments and arguments and counter arguments and arguments and counter arguments. Uh, so it's not even something that's, um, I don't know, particularly controversial to them. It's just a way of, if this is one way of putting it together, here's another way of putting it together. Here's another way of putting it together. So, you know, it's a thing. And then I'd also yeah. say that, uh, I have done a couple of interviews. Well, I didn't specifically did an interview with a, a scholar, Jordan Daniel Wood. And uh, mm -hmm. he he wrote a book on Maximus Confessor, and he's Catholic, and he makes an argument that that the Catholic tradition um, is not as static as it might appear, and that there has been more he can show evidence of more change over time than than it sometimes people want to admit, so that um, he feels like he can be Catholic and in good standing want to continue to have this as an ongoing discussion that this discussion isn't necessarily over because we can see how discussions in the past that were apparently thought were over got started back up again. So that the tradition may not be as static as people think it is. So there are people even within, like if you say, you know, well, if, if you're Catholic, then you can't, you can't believe this. But there are people who are very highly educated in the Catholic tradition who are wanting to say that they think that that the tradition is not a static monolith, but does does have some dynamism to it. And they want to con con continue to advocate for this as part of their ongoing discussion as Catholics. I think that I mean, it's been a, it's been a while since I've um, read the Roman Catholic sources on these things, but my impression from what i've read um is that for roman catholics the most that one can say is that one can hope for the salvation of all but it cannot be a matter of dogma it, you cannot say with with you know confidence and certainty that everybody will in fact be saved this is something that is beyond the limits of catholic theology to say but it is legitimate within the limits of catholic theology i think you can work your way to the conclusion that it's possible in principle that everybody will be saved. This is at least it's an it's a it's an epistemic possibility you want to call it. You know we don't have any facts that rule it out definitively, um, and so we can hope for it, but we cannot say definitively that it will happen. Um, so I, you know I 
Uh, I suppose that would be a longer discussion. It really doesn't matter to me because I'm not Roman Catholic. So that this is a problem for Roman yeah. Catholics to resolve. For well, that it would be, that it would be, yeah, I don't think they're, they're not arguing that it has to be like dogma that in order to be a Catholic, you have to believe in universal salvation. They would say that it was an acceptable opinion that it, that it could be restored as a more acceptable opinion for people to have within the Catholic Church. I think that's an as, an, as a hope. So if you say, I hope that all people will be saved, I think that that is an acceptable position for a Roman Catholic. But if you say that, in fact, everybody will be saved, that is not an acceptable position for Roman Catholicism. And I'm, I don't think that the case can be made against it. I think that there's, there's just, um, you know, too much evidence against it from the, the syllabus of errors from the catechism and from other sources. I think this is just not a position that's actually open for Roman Catholics. But again, that's a problem for them to resolve. I could be wrong about this. You know, maybe, maybe I misunderstand things, but that was the impression that I got when I was doing research on these things years ago. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, the, I guess it's just me doing interviews with people that are very gone to Catholic universities and, you know, PhDs and very familiar with all of these arguments in the history of the tradition, the Catholic tradition. It's just been interesting to me, I guess, that there's, you can find a more vibrant conversation about this. I can find a more vibrant conversation about this within Catholic circles than I previously imagined I would, you know, I would find. So I guess we'll have to see how that continues to develop. Well, I think that we have covered a lot of ground. Yeah, it was a wonderful conversation. I'm really glad that I got the chance to talk to you. Yeah, and I appreciate your, uh, I appreciate your your scholarship. I appreciate it that you are um, continuing to um, produce your scholarship and continuing to grow in your thinking. And I'm glad that you've kind of found um, kind of a topic that you enjoy working on and publishing on, and uh, and that that you do have. You have a number of titles now that you are going to have to have to your name. So I think this means that I don't know. Are are you legitimate? Have you arrived? <laughs> you you know you. I mean, I have a PhD. So as far as like academic scholarship is concerned, I I have as you know I'm as certified as anybody can be to write about theology. Um, yeah. But whether I'm legitimate depends on who you ask, because some people are more sympathetic to my ideas than others. Well. Well, one of the things that I've observed is that there are fewer, there are, there are a lot more people that are coming out with PhDs in like theology and church history and all that kind of stuff than there are positions. So oh, yeah. that the, the validation of your PhD can't just be whether or not you're able to get an academic position somewhere. It, it, it seems like it should be more related to like the quality of the think quality of your thinking, the quality of the work that you continue to do in your life. So, you know, it seems to me that you've got your PhD and you're in the, you're in the game, you're doing scholarship, you're continuing to think, you're continuing to put arguments forward. These are secrets that only God knows because you can, you can be in my position and have your PhD and have published books and, um, you know, published papers, but nobody reads them. Nobody talks about what you're saying. People just ignore you because you're talking about things that they don't find interesting. And then you die and you're forgotten. And then 150 years later, some guy who's trying to write a PhD comes across your things and uh, writes a dissertation about you. And suddenly you're brought back into the conversation long after you're dead. <laughs> and this happens all the time. 
you know, so <laughs> whether or not you produce quality work, there, this is a secret that only God knows. You don't even know because I oftentimes think to myself, like, man, what I produce is garbage. <laughs> and then somebody comes across and says, you know, this is a really great book, a really great article. Thank you for writing it. And then I think to myself, well, that's not the way that I thought about it. <laughs> you know, so it depends if you're a naturally self-critical person. It depends on whether you just get lucky and people read what you write or they don't. Um, it, you know, there are people that are hot and, you know, like are popular right now, but nothing might come of it in 20 years. They'll disappear. They'll fly off the radar. Nobody will ever read their works again. People who are totally obscure today could become world famous in a generation or two. So nobody knows these things. Only God knows. We, we, it's better to leave these sorts of judgments to God and to just, you know, do what you think is right. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you have been doing your scholarship. I enjoyed the interview that I heard with you. Uh, was, uh, I'm, I'm glad to get this chance to have this conversation. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.